I hope you don't mind as we consider what is still very much uh, within the birth narrative of, of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, for me to make a little bit of reference to Christmas as well. I know it's been a, a week uh, since we celebrated that occasion. But as we come to the, the birth narratives, uh, uh, there is still quite a bit to consider. And one of the things that I remember and so often is uh, rather shocking to, to the world and even to some believers, and I remember uh, in a sense being slightly taken aback by, is that we so often, because of the way that Christmas, the Christmas, Christian Christmas scene, because nowadays there's a secular Christmas as well, but, but that the Christian Christmas scene is often portrayed is of this baby that is harmless and threat, uh, presents no threats. It, it is a, 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 a very soothing uh, Christmas scene that is presented to us. There's no threat by this baby. And, and I think the more you read Scripture, the more, uh, and when you take the whole of the, the life of our Lord into account, there is nothing quite as, uh, overstating my case, but there, it is completely erroneous. This baby, this child being born in, uh, in Bethlehem, of course he poses a threat. He poses a threat to such a degree that the most powerful man of this, uh, this region is so threatened by him that he would uh, go to the extent of killing a whole village uh, or killing the, the, the two-year-old and younger of a whole village and its surrounding districts just to try and get rid of this child. At the heart of the Christmas story, not only in Matthew, but in Luke as well, it is a baby that is, he is a threat. I think Herod, uh, he was seeing things in, in a very clear light. He applied it very wrongly, but he, he understood. This baby, he's a threat to my power and my dominion. I need to do something about it. In that sense, it's, his application of theology was wrong, but his, his understanding of what was going on was completely right. And had the emperor in Rome, had Caesar Augustus in Rome, knew about Jesus and this baby born in Bethlehem, he would have probably tried and do the same thing. Had he known about what Jesus would do in his life and what his movement of his disciples would continue to do, he would have probably tried and do the same thing. Because the empire was in danger. And the reality is that Christianity brought an end at least to the empire, the Roman Empire, as it was known then. Whatever else you say about Jesus from his birth onwards, people f certainly found him a threat. He was a threat to the established order, to the order that was there. He upset their, their power, hunger, and games. Plots were hatched, not only at, at the time of his birth, but throughout his life in, on earth. Plots were hatched and, and devised to get him to, uh, to kill him, to silence him. And here at the beginning in the book of Matthew, we don't get this sanitized story about a birth. We are seeing 
what is uh, to be the norm and the pattern of Christ's life throughout his earthly ministry. We are seeing what, we won't go there today, uh, although I considered it. We are seeing the, but you can go and read it at home. We are seeing the, what Revelation 12 gives us a, a glimpse of the background of what was happening Revelation 12 is basically just a retelling of this, uh, of this story from a spiritual perspective. We are seeing what would become the norm for Jesus' life. In fact, the shadow of the cross, let me put it that way, the, 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 the shadow that the cross casts is clearly present in this passage. Satan, the world trying to stop and to kill this baby, this, this, this child. Jesus was born with a price on his head. From the moment of his birth to his death on the cross, there was always someone somewhere out to get him. He had a bounty on his head, as we would say today. And the first one here is Herod, called Herod the Great. Herod was a, a, a terrible human being. We will speak a little bit more about it, but he was terrible. He, had, he thought it nothing about killing his wife, about killing uh, his young child, because he thought that he, this child represented a, uh, a threat to his power. So it is not difficult for us or, or the thought of, of him killing uh, lots of young children, toddlers, should not be regarded as a, as, a, uh, as a surprise. As his power increased, and this is historically accurate, this is historically verifiable, although the, uh, the account of, of the, the slaying of the, of the, uh, the children in Bethlehem is, uh, is unregistered, this, the rest of, of his persona is clearly uh, in, uh, um, in accordance with, with, the, with this action. This is historically verifiable. As his power grew, as Herod the Great became more and more powerful, so his paranoia grew more and more. And this is not unfamiliar. We see this all around the world as... as, as uh, authoritative lead, democratic leaders become more and more powerful, they eventually turn into dictators. That is the history of this world. So the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, was born then in a land and at a time uh, where trouble, tension, fears, and, and, and suffering and violence were present. So as we think about this, the birth narratives, and we try to piece it together with this sanitized view of the Christian Christmas. Let's banish all thoughts that, 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 peace, that, that Christmas was this peaceful, serene scene. He was, he was terrible. He was fearful. Life in the Middle East, life in Bethlehem, life in, the, in Judea was, was a life of oppression both from the, the Roman occupiers, but even from their puppet uh, leaders that were in place, propped up by the Roman Empire, 
It was fearful. The people in the land, they, 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 they were afraid. So before the Prince of Peace learned to talk and to walk, he was already a, a, a homeless refugee fleeing to, to, a, to a foreign land with a price on his head. But at the same time, as we read this passage, I want us to see this, that, that even when things are at their darkest, and this starts very dark and grim and, and, and bleak, that even when things are at their darkest, even when things seem so hopeless, there is a sense that God, there is a sense, no, there is a clear uh, showing that God is in control. In, the, in this, our passage is shown in the three sections that we have in front of us. It's shown by saying, but this is in fulfillment to God's word. This is to fulfill what the prophet or what the prophets had said. Clearly, although it is dark and grim and, 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 and terrifying, it is nonetheless in accordance with God's decree, in accordance with God's purpose. This is how... God intended our Lord Jesus Christ to appear in this world, not in some kind of sanitized, beautiful scene with, with snow falling and, and with, with all kinds of, uh, you know, the pictures. No, the, lo the Lord designed and decreed that the coming of the Son of Man would be in a situation that is bleak, dark, just like the world he came to save. If he is to be Emmanuel, if he is to be God with us, he must be with us where there is pain and where there is darkness, where there is uh, strife. And that's, that is what this chapter is about. If you take the whole chapter together, you see that it's not so much telling us a story about three wise men being, bringing gifts. It is telling us the plotline of, of this opposition that is starting to rise right at the start of our Savior's Life. So the text for us this evening has three sections, as I already told you. If you have a, a New King James Version in front of you, probably this, the sections are uh, separated there for you. It's the flight into Egypt. I don't have any clever uh, alliterated titles this evening. It's the massacre of the innocents, and it is the home in Nazareth. You probably, if you have an, any other translation or any other version, you'll have the same sections outlined with different titles. But first, from verse 13 to verse 15, uh, the flight into Egypt. Once again, we find Joseph receiving a vision, receiving a, uh, a dream uh, from an angel. Now it's no longer about receiving Mary, about Mary uh, receiving Mary as, as his wife, telling, her that, telling him that uh, the, the child we, that is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. But now it's a, a somber, a, a salutary call. You have to flee to Egypt. You have to go. The child is in danger. Go now, make, make haste. And he immediately obeys the order. Verse 13, we, we read that as soon as, uh, uh, verse 13 here, uh, now when they had departed, uh, the angel, arise, take the young child. And, and uh, no, verse 14, when he arose, he took the child 
and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. They straight away went away. They, they, they took no uh, time. Death was lurking in the shadows to eliminate the, their child. So they fled immediately. That very night, they went. It was necessary. Another thing that I want you to see uh, that I think is very much uh, going to be a, a recurring theme at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew as we go along is to notice how Christ, how this child, uh, and even as he becomes, uh, as he grows older, how, uh, how our Lord Jesus Christ uh, is uh, kind of mimicking the, the, the trajectory of Israel. Here, the... Um, Christ is going to, to Egypt so that he may return out of Egypt. And we're going to find that there are a lot of parallels, not only here in chapter 2, but chapter 3, chapter 4, even the Sermon of the Mount, which is basically a, 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 a retelling of the Ten Commandments, is Christ doing uh, what, what happened in Mount Sinai. But I don't want to spoil that now, but something that we need to see that is clearly on Matthew's mind is this idea that Christ is the living embodied Israel and he is going now to Egypt and he will remain there and with all the inconveniences of going through the desert uh, and through the wild and rugged mountains Matthew is is uh, is telling us that he they traveled there by night that they it might have taken them a few weeks but they were there as foreigners as fu fugitives the, the land that once had been the land of oppression is now a land of refuge. That, that is a contrast for you, isn't it? Egypt, of all places, become a land of refuge to the, to the holy child. So why flee? Why, why Egypt? Matthew tells us. It's the first of the, these fulfillment passages. It's so that it would be fulfilled... Which was spoke, that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. The fulfillment of scripture is the reason why this is happening. Among many other reasons, but the primary, the source, the, the, the foundational issue, why, why, why this whole thing is happening and why Christ had to flee. I'm sure there were other means of, of keeping the child safe, but... Egypt had to harbor Israel and Christ as the fulfillment of the type uh, of the uh, the typological Israel had to be in Egypt or had to come out of Egypt it is the fulfillment of scripture and where what we are being taught here is that God is in charge of history he leads history according to his plan Despite uh, the, the cunningness and the terrible actions of Herod that are, that are extremely foolish, uh, the Lord, however, holds in his hands not only the, the heart of Herod, but all the great and the powerful throughout human history. Herod presumes to rule that region. He presumes that he's in control, but in fact, he does not do anything else, that, uh, or he, yet he does not do anything else that needs to happen uh, Besides uh, what, what Christ, uh, what, what God had predetermined to happen. The will of God. 
Out of Egypt I have called my son. This is a quote from Hosea 11, uh, verse 1, or verse 15, that is. And seems in or verse 1, uh, it seems intended to suggest the reader that the Messiah is the personification, as I said already, of the ancient Israel. He is the living embodiment of, of ancient Israel. And that also he, uh, he was a, a kind of a second Moses, a greater Moses. His supreme work of salvation had, uh, has its model in the mighty act of salvation uh, that is, um, or it has its type, let me say it like this to be a little bit more simplified. If you think about the act of God in, uh, in the Exodus story, bringing the people out of darkness and slavery, out of Egypt into the promised land, that is a type of what Christ is coming to do. So therefore, it was important for him to be there. And note, before we move on to the second section, that God, when he pleases, he can make the worst places. This is a point of application. Let's call it like that. Note that God can make the worst places to become safe refuges for us. Would you think of Egypt as a, as a place of refuge? As a place of safety? As an, as an Israelite? Maybe now you do, because you know this story. But as an Israelite, you would never think of Egypt as a, safe, a place of rescue, a place of safety, a place of, uh, of, of uh, security. But the Lord does as he pleases. And sometimes, as I, I said I wouldn't go there, but as Revelation 12 we, we actually quoted it. I quoted it this morning when, it, when in Revelation 12 speaks of the earth opening up to swallow the, the, the deluge that the, the dragon had sent. Sometimes the Lord uses the earth as a means of accomplishing his purposes. Sometimes God may use Moab to shelter his outcasts as he has done. And in this case, he makes each Egypt to be a refuge for his son. Well, if you know a little bit of uh, the history of Israel, you know that this was the case. Although you were, not, you were not supposed to trust in Egypt for safety, so often in the life of the patriarchs, in the life of Abraham, in the life of Israel, of Jacob, it was in Egypt that they found nourishment and safety in times of oppression. And let us mark as well the, the actions of Joseph and Mary. Joseph is, is a, a kind of a minor character in the whole of the history of, of, uh, of Scripture. He doesn't get a lot of, of, uh, of speaking, does he? If any. He doesn't get a lot of uh, preeminence or, or, or a lot of uh, spotlight. It is jokingly said that the I know it, it is not canon, but it's jokingly said that if you're doing a, a, a Christmas nativity play, the, usually the cow gets more lines than Joseph, because the cow at least has to move, and, and Joseph is just there standing. But, but it, it is the truth. Joseph doesn't get much uh, by way of speaking, but his actions speak louder than words, and, and Mary's as well. Look, uh, they go without complaint. They received the 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 instruction 
the first one saying that the, the one generated in Mary was the, the, the son of the Most High, that he was the, the promised Messiah. And now they receive information to run to Egypt. They could have, might have, they should have, humanly speaking, protested. That's what we would have done. Lord, but he's, he's the son of the Almighty. He is, he is the anointed one, the Messiah. Can you not just send a legion of angels? Can you not just uh, bring about deliverance in some kind of easier way? Why do we have to go through this hassle and this pain when there are other means and there are other options available? But they don't do that, do they? I think they knew, they understood that their faith was being tried that the Son of God that they held in their arms, though they see no uh, clear evidence, uh, 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 though they, they know the power of God, they understand that God is, is leading them elsewhere. And they happily, I wouldn't say happily perhaps, but they uh, obediently, they submit to God's will. He must take the young child and carry him to Egypt, and he does so without protestation, without, without uh, any kind of complaint. They just pick up and go. We should learn from Joseph. We should learn from Mary. We should learn as well that this is a, an in, another instance of, or perhaps one of the first instances, not the first certainly, but one of the first instances of Christ's humiliation. We are told that he was to be despised, rejected by man, that he was to be submitted to humiliation. Here's an humiliation for you. Here's a, the, the son of the living God. First of all, coming to this filthy world, finding himself in Bethlehem, there was no room for him. Another humiliation. And now, not only there is no room in Bethlehem for him, truthfully speaking, there is no room in all of Israel for him. His people, the people of God, the people he came to save, no room for him. There's another instance of his, another shadow of the cross being cast right at the start of the Gospel of Matthew. He's banished from the promised land. Banished from the place that was rightfully his. The king of Israel, banished from Israel. Which reminds you of David, doesn't it? Reminds you of the ark. It reminds you of all those types and shadows in the Old Testament. But let us go to the second uh, section. Again, we, we, we focus our attention a little bit more on Herod here. He was fooled. There's something of a, of a, a sarcastic tone to this verse. I don't know if you, can, if you pick it up, but I, I, Herod was fooled by the wise man, by the wise man, and he was exceedingly angry. So what does he do? His hatred burns hot. He spreads to Bethlehem his, his angry fire to Bethlehem and to the outskirts of the city. One who had already filled Jerusalem with blood, 
one who had already killed his family members uh, up until now, now carries out a slaughter in and around Bethlehem. And why this bloodshed? Again, you ask the question, why this bloodshed? Why is this recorded here? We're told. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. You know, the, the story of Jeremiah is very interesting, um, or the, that is recorded for us in Jeremiah 31. That is the, the verse that is being quoted here. There in, in, in that place, in Ramah, he had this vision uh, of the, the mother of the tribes of Israel, Rachel, the, the matriarch. That's in Ramah, that's where Rachel's tomb is, I believe until today. I, although the, the war in Syria has, uh, I'm not sure, a, a few years ago when the, the civil war in Syria was, was raging, they, they were talking about how they, the, the, temple was, the, the tomb was in danger. I'm not sure if it's still there, but it was there. Um, and it's there that Jeremiah has this vision. And, and, and now Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, interprets this vision. Because when Jeremiah had it, he thought uh, in that way that prophets sometimes saw things, but were unable to see be, uh, uh, further along the way how that, what they were seeing actually had a greater, fuller, more complete fulfillment. Uh, when Jeremiah saw that, he saw that in the sense of the people of Israel being taken into captivity in Babylon. And Rachel is crying, he says. But no sooner, if you were, we won't turn there, uh, but it, no sooner does Jeremiah hear the voice of lamentation that is quoted to, uh, for us by Matthew. And the Lord says to him, but restrain your voice of, from weeping and your tear, the tears from your eyes, for there is reward for your deeds. Rachel, who has been called uh, in, in history by, by many the, the mother of sorrow, uh, of sorrow the, the Mater Dolorosa uh, of the Old Testament, she had died, you know the story of Rachel, she had died giving birth to Benjamin, and there is this, this ongoing uh, pain there. Uh, but the children, we, Jeremiah is told, the children of Israel will return from the Babylonian captivity, from the sadness of the Babylonian exile. And new life will become possible for this revived, restored, renewed Israel. And the fulfillment of that, if we're being honest, never came to pass until the, the coming of our Lord Jesus. Yes, a few remnant came back from uh, from uh, captivity under the, the rule of Cyrus but the exile never ended if you were to ask an Israelite in the, uh, in the, in the first century is, is Israel restored now? they would say no the glory of the temple just isn't there yet we have this temple of Herod but it's not like the, the former one there, the glory is just not there in many ways, what we are being told by Matthew here is what is truly a reality. There was still an exile going on. There was still uh, uh, the hope for the captivity of Israel to have finished. Israel is still under the oppression of Rome. 
or after the, captive, the, the oppression of Babylon, there was a small period that they returned, that they, were, they had some sort of regaining of, of, uh, of freedom, of, of independence, but they never had the king again in the throne. The lineage of David never was restored again up until then. And then came the Greeks, and then came the Romans, and this is where we find ourselves. So the, 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 the anticipation, the, 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 the struggle of, of the Israelites in the first century is that, yes, we're still in captivity. We are still waiting for the fulfillment of those promises. And how does the Lord accomplish that? By sending his only son. By sending his only son. Let us mark, before we turn to the third section, and rather quickly, I, I, I know we're pressed for time. Let us mark as well that the adverse and painful situation like this, the killing of these children in Bethlehem, do not escape the control of God in history. I know perhaps if, if you are a little bit more... Uh, uh, on the oppos opposing side, you, you, you're kind of, mm, I really don't like that. But what we're being told here, I won't go there now, but what we're being told here is that even this massacre, even this terrible thing that happened, is not even consequential or meaningless or purposeless. There is a God who is in control even of the greatest tragedies. And I know... There's perhaps many questions there. We might talk about it if you have questions later uh, personally. But we are, what we're being told here is clear. Even this massacre does not escape the control of the God of history. The things that are being carried out are in accordance with his purposes, according to his accomplished uh, plan uh, that has been determined for before time began. And thirdly and lastly, we find the, the return home to Nazareth. Herod died, the angel came back, uh, and there must be something here said about Herod dying. It is appointed to man to die once, even the most powerful of his region at the time. It is said about him that he languished with some form of intestinal cancer. At least that's what some of the historians, modern historians, say about the symptoms that we find recorded about him. It must have been some kind of intestinal cancer. And it is said it was painful, it was prolonged, and it was hard. Isn't it interesting that all of those that in time in their time, rose up to destroy, to quench, to kill uh, not only Jesus, but the movement, his church, that, uh, the movement that started from his, his disciples, from the apostles. All of those that have tried in their own time to stop, to, to, to finish, to, to destroy this, the Christian movement, they have come, they have gone. All the empires that stood uh, as opposition to Christianity, they have fallen or are in the process of falling in our day. None of them will, this will not fail to happen. This is what is written in large letters in the history of humanity, in the history of the Christian church. 
So Joseph, here Herod died. He's he, he told by the angel, now the time came, you can go back. And very promptly, again, without many words, but we find him as a, a great man of faith, obedience to the Lord's will. He gets up, he goes, and he uh, returns. But we are told that he doesn't go back to to, uh, to Bethlehem or to Judea, but knowing that this other son of Herod was in, in power, who was apparently, from historians, much worse than Herod. He didn't last long, by the way, in, in the throne of, uh, of Judea because he was just that bad. He was deposed by the emperor of Rome in around six, uh, in the year six uh, of our Lord. Um, but, he, but he was terrible. And again, being warned, instead of going to Judea, where does our Lord, go, uh, Joseph, take this baby, our Lord? He takes him to Nazareth. And this is one of the most unsettling and perhaps uh, difficult passages uh, to interpret. I don't think it's that hard once you understand what's going on, but uh, it has often been one of those places where uh, critics... Uh, of scripture have pointed to as oh there's an inconsistency we are told it is to fulfill scripture it is to fulfill what uh, was spoken by the prophet she shall be called a nazarene and if you have uh, one of those bibles that has footnotes and cross references you might look but you won't find unless some bibles might have you you won't find uh, an exact uh, place where this prophecy is fulfilled. I, my my cross references here don't don't say anything, because there is no verse in Scripture that says he shall be called a Nazarene, and that is a problem. I don't know how you feel about it, but if it, if it is true that uh, Matthew is here uh, retell, uh, recalling uh, something uh, that is not in our Bibles. A prophet that wrote that, that one book that got taken away off the Bible, maybe? Out of the Old Testament canon, some critics would say. But it's not so much of a problem if you, if you look at it uh, for, uh, from a, one of two possibilities. And I, I'll, I'll leave you with that and I'll allow you to decide. I'm more convinced of one than of the other, but I'll, I'll give you the one that is less convincing to me first and then the one that is more convincing secondly it might be that both of them work it might be that both of them go hand in hand number one is that when in Isaiah 11 it says that a, a root out of Jesse um, will, will, will come out of Jesse the, the word there and let's just find my way because I, um, the, the root out of Jesse out of the stump of Jesse shall come forth a shoot that, that's how and out of its, his roots, a, a, a branch. The word for shoot uh, that will come out of Jesse in, in, uh, in Hebrew is Nazar. Nazar. Jesus is called Nazar, the root of Jesse, the, the, the shoot from Jesse. It might be that Matthew is referring to that. In fact, when Jesus was. Uh, Crucified above his head, Jesus the Nazarene, Ye Yeshua the Nazar, uh, was there. But there is another possibility which I'm more convinced of. 
And it comes from the, the plural form that you find there. If you look at verse 23, uh, it says, which was spoken by the prophets. Plural. And that's interesting. Because up until now, we, uh, Matthew was very uh, clear in saying the prophet. In fact, in the second section, he even quotes who the prophet is. Just to make the life easier of those who study the Bible. But here he says, the prophets. And oftentimes when you find this reference to the prophets, it's, it, it's telling you that it's not so much that one of them said this, but that there is this sense in Scripture, this uh, unspoken, uh, complex uh, bringing together of many ideas that were spoken about uh, or, uh, by several prophets. And I think that makes more sense. Especially when you consider what Nazareth was. Nazareth was a land in Galilee. Galilee was not part of Judea. It was part of the Gentile uh, uh, part of the promised land. It was a part of Judea, uh, the ancient borders. But at this time, Galilee was a Gentilic land. It was not a place that uh, good, uh, kosher Jews would like to spend time in. So if you take that into account, and you know that in, in his later life, Jesus was criticized because of being of Nazareth. Can anything good be, come out of Nazareth? And that is quite true. That in, in the prophets, several prophets speak about the Messiah as one who would be despised. Psalm 20, uh, 22, Isaiah 53, maybe the two most preeminent prophecies. And, and, and Jesus, being a Nazarene uh, uh, from Nazareth, points us again to this one who would be despised, rejected, even by his own people. And I think that is the fulfillment of the prophet, what the prophets had spoken. He went to Nazareth so that he would be fulfilled what the prophets had spoken. He would be one who is despised. He would be a Nazarene. He would be called one who is despised. So observe, again, the shadows of the cross. And we need to see this, especially in the birth narratives, because it is so important to realize that the, the work of our Lord Jesus is not only the work that he performed on the cross that saves us, but it's a, a whole life. Right from the start, he is engaged in the work of salvation. Observe in this part where the shadow of the cross is already being cast upon our Lord Jesus. Even as a child, even as a baby, he is already a man of sorrows. He is already one who is despised and rejected. It wasn't just something that happened uh, 32 years later on the cross where he was rejected or at the beginning of his earthly ministry. From the early start of his life, he was involved in this spiritual warfare with the dragon, as Revelation 12 tells us. He was already at war and bruising the serpent's head. That's why he had to flee to Egypt. That's why he is a perfect savior. So what can, can more can we take home from this passage? What more can we learn? Besides that, yes, even here at the start, there is already this spiritual uh, ongoing warfare between Satan and his minions and, and, and the seed of the woman and, the, and, and the, the, the faithful remnant. That, that warfare, that has never 
really finished from the beginning of, uh, of uh, or since the fall. You see it in Cain and Abel. Even at the start, after the fall, Cain and Abel. There's the fight going on. Jacob and Esau. There is the strife continuing. The descendants of Jacob and the Egyptians. The Pharaoh trying to eradicate the, the, the descendants of Israel by killing all the male children. You see this on and on and on. The Canaanites, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. It is on and on and going on and on until we get... Uh, it's Goliath. It's, it's Herod. It's the Roman and the Jewish uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees. Even after the resurrection, it's, it's the Sanhedrin and the authorities in, 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 in Jerusalem. It's when Paul comes over to, 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 to Europe, to Greece, to Macedonia. It's the leaders there. It's the Roman Empire in the 2nd and 3rd century. It's been going on and on. So we should not lose heart when we find that Satan is seeking to destroy the work of God in our own day. It's nothing new. That doesn't even bring, shouldn't even shock us when we find that there are opponents that are fierce and voracious that would destroy Christianity in a heartbeat out there. That's just a part of life in this ongoing fight. At present, Satan's rage, although he's been defeated finally and uh, ultimately in, on the cross, there is still a raging of Satan, in, in, but Christ is still defeating him and will defeat him. By, to, in the end, Revelation 12 says, by the blood of the Lamb. In the meantime, the battle continues. And we are to be prepared for that spiritual battle. But I, that is a sermon in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God that we, we, we should uh, maybe one time come to consider. But there is this ongoing spiritual battle. Secondly, as a point of application quickly, we cannot expect to serve the Lord in an environment that gives us an easy time of it. We must understand that we are, if we are to be followers of Christ... Our life will not be different from his. If we have a charge to keep from our God, for our God, we will to face our deserts, our exiles in Egypt, and we too must bear it, as Joseph did, with patience, with trust, with confidence, with faith, and wait until the Lord says, now it's time. Get up and rise. Go back. Waiting, being patient is a hard work. Especially when, when we are waiting in places like Egypt. But it is safe for us to trust and to be where the Lord has put us. And to wait for his marching orders before we move. We sometimes are so bad at this. And that's my third point in a sense, incidentally. We, sometimes we, we just want what we want. We just want better. We just want, we, I deserve better. I want to pick up and go. I want something. I want, I want to be uh, great things. And we, because of this world, especially in our culture, in our day and age, there's this culture of seeking and wanting great things. I want what's best for me. 
in this world. I don't want to wait. I don't want to be patient about it. I want to get it and I want it now. That's the, the, the attitude of this world, this fast food culture that you ask for something and the next day you get it delivered by Amazon Prime. That's, uh, that's how we want things, in our, how we've been programmed and, and come to expect. But let us not be like that, brothers and sisters. That is the most countercultural way we can, we can behave in, the, in a world that is so fast and furious. So, so, so desirous of, uh, of receiving of immediate gratification is the, the, the countercultural. Uh, I've been reading this book, I, I mentioned it to Peter. The, the unfermented, uh, the, the ferment of patience that the Christians, the virtue of patience that we as Christians should have. It is a great sin to want things here and now, to not be able to wait. But let us learn here from the beginnings of the life of our Lord Jesus and from his whole life. Let us strive to copy his humility. He was humble from the beginning of his life, from his birth to his death. We may have not have much knowledge. We may not, our faith must, may not be as strong as it should be, may be weak. Our, our strength may be small. But if we are the disciples of him who was from Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Let us, by all means, be patient and humble as he was patient and humble. And let us strive to copy him and not fall to the, the, the sin of covetousness of worldly thinking, of proud and carnal-mindedness. But let us be humble like he was, despised, rejected by man. Because blessed are the...